You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we talk about emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. This episode was first published on Thursday, 7th of April, 2016. Don't forget, you can find show notes linking to everything we mention in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Welcome everyone to Mex Design Talk. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex, and with me is my co-host Alex Guest. Alex, how's life treating you? Great, thanks Marek. It's good to be here again. Good stuff. Well, we're also joined today by a guest, Ramona Liberoff, who is the CEO of the Spring Accelerator. Ramona, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Hello everyone, my pleasure. Uh, so some of you uh, may remember Ramona from a talk she gave at Mex uh, when she was actually on the management team of a startup called Movertu, which ended up being bought by BlackBerry uh, and was also our Mex Innovator of the Year award winner that year. Um, but Ramona has uh, gone on to do all sorts of other interesting things, which was kind of the motivation behind asking her to come on uh, as a guest uh, for the podcast. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to her about the things that she's doing around angel investing and uh, with the Spring Accelerator as well a bit later on. Um, but I'm conscious that we are recording this late on a Thursday afternoon and figured that we might need a bit of an exercise to get our own brains into gear. Um, so we have this idea of having a bit of a chat about the notion that innovation has many guises. Uh, now, innovation is, of course, a pretty horribly misused word. Um, but in this context, we wanted to each find an example of a novel product or an experience or a thought or a story, really anything that has made us think differently about what innovation means in experience design uh, and do a bit of a show and tell where we looked at why that particular example related to experience design uh, and use that as a starting point before we talk in more detail with Ramona about some of the things that she's been working on. Uh, so, um, Alex, given that... Uh, you are an old hand as a co-host of the, the podcast. Um, I'm going to ask you to go first with the example that you've found. Well, Marek, I think one of the things that I, I wanted to, to do was um, look at innovation from a slightly different perspective to, to the norm. Often we think of innovation as trying to solve a particular problem with a new solution. Uh, but some of the most durable innovations that you can think of that are just in your ordinary day-to-day -day life um, have come not from a problem looking for a solution, but from a solution looking for a problem. Uh, a couple of famous ones, of course, things like the post-it note uh, and things like Tyvek that came out of um, industrial uh, processes that in some way went wrong. Um, but what I really wanted to talk about actually was Velcro. Um, I, I grew up uh, knowing Velcro like most people and, and had shoes as a small child that had uh, Velcro straps to keep them on. Um, but I, I, I learned about the story of how Velcro came into existence while out trekking in Patagonia about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, one of my companions had a pair of uh, trousers that were 
gathering uh, the little burrs from a forest. And it turns out this is actually how Velcro came to, to be. A, a Swiss engineer by the name of Georges de Mistral, if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, all the way back in 1941, uh, was walking in the woods and wondered if the burrs that were clinging, clinging to his trousers and also his dog could be turned into something useful. So at this point, he doesn't even have a product. It's not even a solution. It's just this fanciful idea that you could stick things together in such a way that might in some way become commercially viable. Uh, and it took him well over 10 years before it actually became a commercial uh, product. Well, it sounds like um, your friend in Patagonia, unfortunately, was a few years too late to be able to uh, use this inspiration for, for his own uh, innovation. But it, it's a, a very um, interesting example. And I mean, certainly what it, it makes me think of is this idea of um, where and when inspiration to innovate comes around. Uh, and more often than not, that that is not within the office and the, the lab environment, but rather when you're exposed to uh, external stimuli of some kind, be it you know, a walk out in the, the hills um, or some other kind of thing, which is outside of your day-to-day -day norm that is needed to kind of give that, that seed of an idea. Uh, is this a story you're familiar with as well, Ramona? I am actually, and I love the whole idea that biomimicry often gives rise to innovations, um, and and the fact that Velcro has proven so useful in so many different contexts as well. Absolutely. Um, now, did you manage to come across an example yourself when you were searching around for this exercise? I did many. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about one of my favorites. In fact, it's so good I even invested a bit in it myself. Um, there's a company called Extremist Technologies. Um, and it's innovating at the most basic level of human need, which is shelter. Basically, extremists have come up with a pop-up disaster relief shelter, which is better than any alternative on the market. Um, it's made of sustainable, long-lasting materials. It's extremely easy to assemble. And it's even legal to use, um, not to mention that it works very well in different sorts of climates. Unfortunately, shelter is a need that we face uh, more, more greatly than ever before, given refugee crises and the movement of many, many millions of people. So you can see why this sort of thing is desperately needed. And one, one of the reasons, the ways I approached innovation was not to look for novelty, but to look for common sense applied intelligently in the area of a very big scale problem. And of course, I'll come back to that when I speak more about Spring Accelerator. Yeah, that, that's an interesting example. And uh, as you say, um, it really speaks to that need to tie um, new developments or, or new solutions to these problems to those really core needs for people. And I, I suppose in the case of shelter, um, they are, as you say, particularly basic needs, but ones which are very strongly articulated. Um, as someone who uh, has ended up investing in, um, in the company, did you have much of an insight into how they went about uh, getting that kind of uh, understanding of, of those user needs and, and how they then use that to do it in a better way than others had managed? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they did two things. One was they really went and understood the whole environment of development procurement uh, which sadly has its flaws. So a lot of times when, when agencies are procuring things like mosquito netting or tents at scale, they tend to be under pressure to look for the cheapest possible solution. And often cheap is the enemy of innovation. It doesn't have to be, but a manufacturing logic that pushes everything to the lowest possible cost sometimes works against innovation. So they thought, why do we have to make a compromise? Why can't we make something that is both um, over the long term 
uh, less expensive per use and also more able to be used well in lots of different contexts, as well as easy to transport. So, you know, they really thought about the problem from the context of not just the user, for which it's substantively better than tents, leaky tents or hot cargo containers, but also from the standpoint of the buyer, the development agencies who need to justify uh, the cost of spend. Well, it, it um, highlights, I suppose, one of the things that you find often in areas uh, like healthcare as well, that when we talk about users, uh, we're not always just talking about needing to innovate for uh, the end user as such, but also all of those other users that are encountered along that kind of chain of experience. I mean, healthcare, that can sometimes include the person who's prescribing, uh, the sort of casual support network that the patient has, and of course, that the patient themselves. But it, it's a, a principle which seems to underlie a lot of good experience design is that recognition that uh, the, the term user can actually be a bit of a, a shifting definition and, and can vary from uh, from individual to individual. Exactly. And in the case of disaster relief housing, you have to think about the context of transport and assembly. You can't assume that the person assembling it is going to be a skilled carpenter or have any engineering training. Um, okay, so I suppose uh, I better also offer an example, given that I was the one who um, put you to the trouble both of, of finding examples yourself. Uh, and um, I actually had a bit of a, a moment the other day when I was walking through London and I spotted uh, one of the telephone boxes, um, not one of the very picturesque uh, red metal telephone boxes, uh, which I guess London is, is known for around the world. But this was one of the ones which was introduced during, I think, probably the, the mid to late 80s. And I actually remember as a kid seeing these things arriving. And at the time, they were um, these shiny new things of glass and plastic. They were a real contrast to the existing phone boxes. Uh, and uh, the one that I came across in London the other day had the legend written up top, telephone, coins and cards accepted. And uh, there was actually green moss now starting to grow all over the outside of this phone box. And it had started almost to become part of the kind of natural landscape uh, rather than, uh, you know, something which was part of the, um, the technology or the, the built fabric of, uh, of London. Uh, and it just got me thinking uh, as I saw that. Uh, having been at a meeting earlier in the day where people were talking about innovation in relation to, to digital payments, that once that phone box, that phone box which now looks so dated and in fact uh, is starting to be subsumed by nature, was someone within BT's pet innovation project and was no doubt the subject of lots of different whizzy presentations about how this was uh, incrementally better than the, the phone boxes that had come before it. Uh, and the, the feeling that it really left me with was the sense of to what degree uh, we consider the longevity of innovation. Innovation is almost something which inherently uh, is tied up with the short term and doing things quick and fast and new. Uh, and yet uh, everything, particularly when there's a physical output from it, ends up bringing an object of some kind into the world. Uh, and we need to give thought to how those innovations are going to play out over the long term. Uh, in this case, you know, whether or not the thing is going to be a sustainable piece of furniture for the, the streetscape in London, which uh, in this case, and I'll, I'll leave a link to the show notes uh, in the show notes to the, the photograph that I took, um, it rather looks like perhaps nature might uh, be gaining the upper hand just uh, 20 or 30 years on since this innovation was introduced into the world? 
I, I um, love going for walks in, in forests where you've seen old stone houses that have been completely uh, recovered by nature and trees are sort of growing through them and have gradually pulling them to pieces. Um, but the, the, the thing that springs to mind with this is, you know, this innovation, um, bringing in these new shiny plastic um, boxes, um, I, I, I guess that the reason they, they did this is because it, they were cheaper to maintain than than uh, the old metal ones and yet today it's mostly the old metal ones that are in circulation very true and in fact um if there's any innovation happening around phone boxes at the moment which may be a bit of a contradiction in terms but um it's that some of them and really only those classic old red metal ones uh, are actually being kind of subverted by um, some of their local communities and turned into things like uh, miniature cafes, book exchanges. Uh, there was even one I came across in a little village in Sussex where at Christmas time they'd kind of turned it into like a miniature Christmas sh- uh, shrine uh, using this this phone box. And I think BT now even has a program where they work with communities to reuse the, the phone boxes in some way. Um, but intriguingly, it is actually those ones which were sort of built to last the old metal ones rather than these uh, these newer glass and, and plastic ones that seem to be standing the test of time um, well how are we all feeling after um, that discussion did it serve the purpose of maybe getting uh, getting the brains engaged for a bit more of a, a discussion i think it did i feel innovated <laughs> <laughs> splendid well um i think perhaps it, it would make sense to uh talk a little bit about where things started for you Ramona Um, I'm very interested to hear more about what's happening with your latest role Spring Uh, but just by way of some background um, for me in all of the conversations that you and I have had over the years I've always been struck by um, that sensitivity that you seem to have to the importance of design and the importance of how design relates to the lives of individual people now is there somewhere that you can trace that to um, in your your education or, or your upbringing, where you you feel that um, you know there was a moment when that that kind of clarified for you that how important those things can be? Oh, Marek, I wish I had one of those perfect Poincaré um, moments when I looked into the fire and all became clear for me. <laughs> but all I would say is I've traveled. I've had the good fortune to travel a great deal, and being a bit mischievous and difficult to manage, um, I haven't enjoyed or wanted to stay within the classic business traveler bubble. So I've always, um, as my travels have taken me increasingly further afield um, in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa, um, and in South Asia most recently, I've, I've always tried to escape that a little bit and, and actually understand and observe how people live, uh, the things that challenge them, the things that delight them, uh, what ordinary life is like on the street, streets of cities, because I find it inspiring. But also, I, I also think it's a very important thing to do to be responsible if you're doing things like consumer research or insight, which I have done in the past, to have some empirical comparison point to the sheaves of data that seem to tell one story. But if you can't actually put it in context, they're not terribly helpful. Now, how have you seen that evolve um, on the, the professional side? Because uh, 
you know, I guess what you're describing there is that sort of core instinct of being able to look at people's lives and understand what's going on there and then use that information in a responsible way to, to inform you know, some kind of, of response. But um, when you first uh, started your career, um, and I know you've spent time working with um, the likes of, of Nielsen and Kantar in, in you know, very senior roles, um, was there a, you know, a formality to that, that process at that point? Or is that something that you've seen evolve over time in the way companies have started to uh, you know, offer those kind of services to, to industry to, to help them get that insight into uh, how people live their lives and how that can be, uh, be useful? Mm, interesting. I think it may actually be going in the other direction. Um, as we have more and more granular data available to us that's available to slice and dice, we run the risk of, of taking a kind of omnipotent perspective and believing that we understand because we have analyzed. But you know, human behavior, human motivations uh, are, are so dependent on context that I think we have to try and find a way to reintroduce this, what are called the softer disciplines around anthropology or, psych- or social psychology or cultural understanding in order to really bring to life what it is we think we're seeing in the patterns of data. And, and Ramona, I mean, you, you talk about observing people in, in action. Um, if you're trying to, to understand them better, is it best just to observe them, do you think, or, or to ask them? I think both. But then you also have to be aware of what you asking them means. Um, and perhaps find an interlocutor with whom they could be more honest or comfortable. But um, I think observing first is probably a good prerequisite to asking um, and also trying to learn as much as possible from those who in a way straddle worlds. Um, Our country managers, for example, for spring are all very notable for having uh, built careers in their own countries, but also spent quite a lot of time abroad in the West, in the US or Western Europe. So they understand the context in which we're asking the questions, but they very much understand how to translate uh, their understanding of their culture to us. And I find that's really, really helpful as we try and figure out how to do our work. So tell us a bit more about uh, Spring then, Ramona, and, and how this kind of discipline of, of understanding people's lives and, and, and making some kind of insight from that relates to the work that Spring does. I would be delighted. So just uh, at a very overview level, Spring is kind of an innovation uh, and a very brave, audacious, ambitious thing in and of itself. Um, Spring is backed by three um, development agencies, the UK Department for International Development Um, the Nike Foundation in partnership with Girl Effect, and also USAID. And the notion came together of all places in a yurt a few years ago when people were chatting and saying, what if we could get the private sector to create sustainable market-based economic assets for adolescent girls? Now, adolescent girls are important because if you can keep a girl in school longer and give her some economic wherewithal, that actually has a transformational power on society. But also important because very, very little of every development dollar goes to adolescent girls. The attention has either been on women as entrepreneurs um, or else as children, as school children. And the adolescent girl seems to be a bit missed out. Um, So in their kind of fantastical conversation, Spring was born, which is an accelerator program that uses human-centered design across um, East Africa and South Asia to encourage businesses to innovate against the needs of adolescent girls and launch prototypes to market that hopefully have a bright commercial future. So no shortage of ambition there. Uh, Absolutely. Um, And can you perhaps give us an an example of um, one of the things that that Spring has been working on so far, just to, to put some of this in context? 
Of course, we work in cohorts in a region. So we're just coming to the end of our first cohort in East Africa. And we have been in our first cohort working with very early stage entrepreneurs, many of whom are social entrepreneurs. And they've been working on some fascinating things. Um, a couple things I'd mention are just to prove that things are not always where you would look for them, obviously. There are no pink products, as I call them, in our, in our cohorts. They're solving real problems that have also beneficial impacts for families in some cases or on the environment in which the girls live. One great example is a, a flooring resin technology called Earth Enable. And the problem they're solving is that in Rwanda, most people have dirt floors. They're, they're difficult to maintain. The burden of sweeping them falls to the adolescent girl, as does the burden of ill health by having a sort of unsanitary floor. But concrete, uh, concrete floors are far too expensive for most people to afford. So Earthenable has a particular sort of model where they have used masons to lay floors and cover them with a resin which perform far better than, than dirt floors. And the spring innovation to that is to say, look, how do we make that available to even more families at a lower price point? Um, spring helped Earth Enable come up with a do-it-yourself product that allows the families to install it themselves. It may not be quite as beautiful as the mason-laid product, but it does actually uh, um, allow Earth Enable to reach far more families. And how do you go about um, making that kind of uh, innovation leap? You know, when you when spring comes into the the process where there's something which it sounds like the sort of initial idea had come together and there'd been some some early market examples of it, but you've now helped that to be taken to the the, the next level. What kind of skills does um, spring bring in to to help that happen? Well, it's going to sound very simple. It's not in practice, <laughs> but ba the basic core of it is human centered design. Many of our innovators are technologists or engineers, or in the case of Earth Enable, a research chemist who've come up with solutions that do work quite well in context. But we're keen to push that even further and really put the needs of the adolescent girl front and center. And then as soon as the, the um, entrepreneurs or the businesses understand the needs of the girl, it becomes clear as you work on prototypes together, how you can modify or enhance the existing product or, or asset to meet those needs even better. Going back to the point that you made, uh, Alex, um, you know, there's this idea of uh, how we um, involve the, uh, the the participants of the research, as it were, in the, the creation um, of the outcomes as well. Now, is that something that you're exploring with this as, as well, Ramona, that Absolutely. as well as understanding the needs, you're involving some of the, those users in the process uh, as well? Absolutely. The nine-month cohort process basically is iterative. And at every key point, you go back and check in with users. You develop, first of all, you understand the basic needs. You create an innovation or a prototype against them. You go into field and test with actual users. They give you feedback. You, you iterate and refine your prototype. You go back out again. And eventually, you develop something um, that, that is market viable and you test it. Nine months is just about enough time to get something out the door. But we continue to measure and, and track the lessons learned for the following few years in order to make sure that we understand what works and why. And what happens after the nine months are up? I mean, typically in, in uh, startup accelerators in, in the developed world, um, you might take a round of funding and then take mm -hmm. another round, maybe 12 or 18 months after that and so forth. But in, in, the, in the context of um, social entrepreneurship, I guess it's probably slightly different. It's a really good question. Um, we, we are sort of slightly shifting a little bit because although we have been doing investment readiness uh, and investment support, 
we think that we may actually be able to make greater impact by having a more mixed cohort so that some of our businesses in our next cohort, we hope, will be more established businesses that have distribution channels, that have access to markets so that they can actually make more impact faster, even though this will not be their core business or the reason why funders may come and give them money. Um, they may also be able to reach, for, reach out for the first time for pools of social or impact capital, whereas they have sought mainstream funding in the past. So we're going to be trying out a slightly different model next time where our cohort will be more varied in terms of stage and in terms of focus. I would be personally delighted if we found an extremely hardcore, very commercially oriented business that suddenly discovered they've been ignoring a market opportunity of 15% of the market and went after it. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, that does sound fantastic. And, and I guess it's really important um, for, for this to be viable that um, it, it is quickly commercially um, realizable. Yes, Absolutely. And what people don't realize is that the poor have money, girls have money, and that the poor are willing to invest in things that make their lives substantively better. Um, spending on education or even in consumer goods in my previous life, um, a poor family will, will more quickly buy a brand because they feel the risk of failure of that product is less than buying an unbranded good. And that's the sort of thing that always used to take my clients by surprise, but makes perfect sense when you think about it. I think the other, the other thing is that families will often purchase and pool their funds together in order to give one of their kids, um, you know, something substantive like education or access to digital services. And we tend to think of consumers or buyers as individual, whereas in fact, a lot of the context of purchase in the world is still very collective. How different is this for you um, compared to businesses that you've worked in previously? Because obviously that that interest in human centered design has always been there, um, but this is not a, another um, startup, you know, in a set of shiny offices in a <laughs> Western city. This is yeah, not a um, a large scale consulting business. Uh, how how different have you found it to um, you know work with the, the the new set of challenges that Spring brings for you as the CEO? Oh, what a good question. Um, I mean, in some ways, everyone always assumes that resources are, are unlimited in large corporates. And in my experience, it's quite the opposite. I actually feel that there is more freedom to act and to innovate here and to learn and fail faster than there would be in any institutional setting. And that's quite refreshing. Um, I would say that working with three very different donor clients and understanding their agendas and what good looks like for them is new to me. Um, and there's also a very kind of wide and in some cases, conflicting sets of targets, uh, which we're trying to puzzle through and prioritize. Because um, the, the world of development is a new world to me. And that is, that's the fun of learning about it. Um, so in that respect, it is quite different. And the particular geographies that you're working in, you mentioned uh, East Africa and Southeast Asia, I believe. South Asia. Uh, South Asia, rather. Um, do, do they bring unique challenges um, that, that vary d d between those two areas that you're working in? Mm. We're focused in both cases very much on the, the needs and the situation for adolescent girls. And I would say that one very striking thing in South Asia, which is I, in which I have less experience than East Africa, is that the context of families and the, the gender roles of girls really does both constrain and provide enormous opportunities for change. So, for example, in South Asia, um, in Bangladesh, the estimate is that only 3% of adolescent girls have ever accessed the Internet. But then when you speak to them, they say things like, we don't have the internet, but we have Facebook, <laughs> for example, which, which says there's actually quite an appetite. Um, I think the other interesting thing is demographically, these are incredibly young countries. In a few years time, um, half of Pakistan will be under 25. 
And yet only about one, one and a half percent of the population has any sort of vocational skills. So you're facing a region which has, on the one hand, a potential demographic dividend. On the other hand, a completely different setup when it comes to access to technology or digital services for girls than, than exists even in East Africa. So it's quite fascinating. One question that comes to mind um, for me is, is uh, I, I guess I'm trying to chat tackle this challenge of of uh, helping adolescent girls who, who are less catered for is um, are you specifically looking for for local companies to to, to support uh, those challenges um, are you are you indeed trying to encourage adolescent girls to go into these sorts of businesses and start up businesses themselves um, Alex for the scale of impact we have to make we, we're looking at a target of reaching 200,000 adolescent girls within four cohorts of 20 businesses each. So we're not really in the business of creating micro-enterprises. Plenty of people are doing that. Lots of people are trying to spur women's entrepreneurship or girls' entrepreneurship. What we sort of have found out is that if we try and include girls in the value chain as franchisees or so on, really girls 10 to 19, even in East Africa where they are more permitted freedom, it's quite hard to do. So. What we're trying to focus on instead is getting businesses to create products and services that really benefit girls, that really speak to them, and that really meet their needs, rather than trying to ask girls to become entrepreneurs themselves. Sure, that makes sense. I'm intrigued by um, some of the methodology here as well, Ramona, and I think um, potentially it's something which... Uh, give some very valuable insights to people that are working in broadly experienced design across the world. Uh, I mean, when you look at um, all of those seemingly quite stark differences between the, the markets that you're working in and the um, yeah, very um, specific factors which um, impact the, the different users that, that are involved in this, uh, are there um, methods which you're able to abstract from that which you feel can be valuable um, throughout the different areas that you're working in, uh, in terms of the sort of ways you go about understanding the, the unique requirements of the different users, the kind of user-centered design methodologies that you're employing? Are you finding that there are some of those which are globally applicable and some of those which are only applicable in, in some of the territories that you're working in? I think, I think, Mark, that the methodologies are remarkably similar. But what's interesting is that they're substantively new. Um, there really isn't much of an awareness or much practice in human-centered design in these countries. Um, there aren't really design schools as such. A lot of them are very new. There aren't really design agencies. Um, so we are coming in with something that people are open to and curious about but have never really done. And the feedback we've had so far from our entrepreneurs is it's given them a completely different way of thinking about approaching all of their business challenges, not just the one that we've asked them to solve for spring. So it's quite exciting because the, the, the realization that these methods are universally applicable um, it is, is really fantastic. And we're actually hoping to produce some evidence around that in order to make more of a case for investing in human-centered design capacity building. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think um, it, it's probably a, a surprise factor that is shared among supposedly very large and advanced corporations mm. once they first start getting to grips <laughs> with these things as well. Exactly. It's not something which uh, is limited merely to, you know, to, to um, organizations that are working in uh, much more constrained circumstances. Indeed, indeed. I mean, a lot of the people who run these businesses are extremely smart, very well educated. So there's no lack of intellectual horsepower. But what I would say is typically they've been brought up in highly analytical domains. For example, in Pakistan, it's very much prized to go to medical school or study engineering. 
Um, whereas things like design are still a little bit more of an unusual choice from a family prestige point of view. Now, one of the other shared interests that you and I have had conversations about over the years, Ramona, is about um, the role of uh, design education and education broadly. And in fact, you very kindly came and gave a talk to uh, some of the students at Brunel University, who we've worked closely with for a number of years in the, the MEX initiative about the importance of entrepreneurship and that entrepreneurship can be a, a viable route for, for students as well. Um, but thinking about you know, what you've um, learned from the new role at Spring and what you've picked up uh, in the different um, ventures you've been involved with over the years. Uh, what's your view today on um, where we are with teaching um, the next generation of students, either in the kind of countries where Spring works or, you know, in, in countries um, closer to the, the, the home market for, for MEX, uh, about um, how we can, you know, teach people to give more importance to the uh, the role of human-centered design and how they go about being entrepreneurs and, and solving problems? Mm. Well, there was a very interesting question that was raised when Rue, who's my partner in crime, Rue Rogers, who's a partner at Fuse Project, and I were giving a talk to a set of design students in Pakistan. Um, one of them raised the question um, that there's no intellectual property regime um, that can really stand up to copycats or, you know, being imitated from other places. And in that case, why become a designer? And our view, very forcefully back to the student, <laughs> was actually that's exactly the reason to take up design because the only way in which you can continue to innovate and stay ahead of competition is by understanding your user better than anyone else. And over time, creating a brand that provides you with an intangible but lasting differentiation. So it's not about the thing itself. It's about the relationship that you build with your user and what better way to get to that than design. Nothing else can, can save you. So we see that, I suppose, being uh, encoded, as it were, into the kind of programs which are taught at universities that have a strong reputation for, for design, you know, places like Brunel or, you know, the, the big universities in, in the US. Um, but are you seeing things, uh, as it were, kind of closer to the ground um, with the Spring Accelerator uh, of the kind of skills, the kind of life skills which really equip someone to have that kind of uh, basic understanding? I mean, what are some of the things that you can use just to keep your eyes open to that importance of, of understanding the people around you and being able to design well for them? Mm. I would say, actually, Mark, overall, I think we're, we are losing a trick. Um, people don't mix as much as they used to with people who are different than they are in different social classes, with different political beliefs. Uh, we've all heard about the power of uh, assorted matching, for example. The reason, One of the reasons why there's a greater divide between rich and poor in developed societies is that now people of a similar educational level are marrying people with a similar educational level um, and therefore only hanging around with people who are like them. So I, I also see this with the elites in East Africa or South Asia are very similar to the elites in Western Europe, um, but even more so. They are in a way isolated from the poor and therefore liable to come up with some very odd notions about what the poor are like or what the poor need. Um, even in physical geography, you look somewhere like Islamabad, which is a sort of carbon copy of Washington, D.C. or Brasilia, very much a city outside of context. And yet that's where all of the policy decisions are being made for the people of Pakistan without really any reference or any connection to them. Um, so I'm actually a little bit concerned that, for our, leave aside the educational environment, 
there simply aren't enough social places where people can be brought together to mingle and to understand each other. Bring back the dance hall, I say. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, is that something you think you can get from travel as well? I mean, you mentioned earlier on in the discussion about how you feel that uh, travel is one of the things that's really informed your view on this importance of, of design in the world and, and getting to know the lives of people. Um, is that something which you um, intend to, to continue? Well, there's travel and there's travel. One of the interesting things about the development context is that the the desire to keep people safe sometimes overcomes um, the desire for people to actually understand the environment. I know many people working in Pakistan, for example, who are not permitted to leave the safe havens or compounds that are comprised of mainly Westerners or, or foreigners. So they have less contact with local culture than I do on the number 63 bus coming into Peckham, which is quite quite interesting and does have some rather profound implications. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alex, I know um, that you spend time mentoring uh, businesses within accelerator programs and uh, you know, generally in the, the technology industry. What do you think about this idea of, if you like, the, the need for that sort of polymath knowledge to be able to make um, you know, real uh, leaps forward, which, uh, which connect the dots? Definitely. Um, I, I think when you look at very early stage startups, which are the ones that I've mostly been been dealing with in recent times um, no one person can have all the knowledge that you need to 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 create success and and very often a, a one or two founder team will try to to learn as much as possible um, but one of the key things that they need to bring in quite quickly um, are all the different skills that are that are vital um, for for that particular organization to to succeed um, if I may give the example of, of, of the business that I'm currently working with, um, my, my own business, I, I, uh, while I'm very interested in the field of nutrition and have a fair amount of understanding around, around that field, I'm not a nutritionist and I also don't have experience in changing people's um, eating habits. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm now out looking for, for someone, I'm speaking with someone in particular, to, to try and bring them on board um, because we have shared interest in the field coming from different directions but they're, they're an expert in this area and 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 my experience is in in the technology side or, or rather in the in the business of technology um, so I, I think it's it's vital um, to, to try and bring in lots of different sorts of skills and experience and backgrounds um, in, in order to to um, to succeed it almost feels to me like a, a bit of a new um, generation within people who work in businesses that are trying to solve problems, often employing technology to do that, where we've gone through this phase where um, to be able to apply technology to these kind of problems and solving things in people's lives, you had to have that very strong technical understanding uh, and to have gone through some quite rigorous, quite siloed training to achieve those kind of skills. Uh, But now, you know, by virtue of the way technology is beginning to pervade people's lives, uh, it's making um, the kind of problems that technology is being asked to to solve so much broader uh, that it kind of asks of us all to be able to equip ourselves with much better knowledge of people's lives, of much better knowledge of um, the different industries which uh, technology is now being employed within to be able to create really meaningful experiences and that that does um, put the emphasis on having that kind of broader polymath skill set. And if I could also put in a plug for a range of ages, 
um, and backgrounds as well as life experiences. Because one of the things I observe is for the first time in my career, my team is 20 years younger than me. That is very scary to say, I'll have you know. But um, I observe that they're very comfortable hanging out with lots of other people like them, but there aren't very many people like me around. I don't quite know what happens to all of us. Maybe we just all go live in Surrey or something like that, and we stop flying to Pakistan <laughs> and economy. But but I, I do think we're in danger somewhat of, of writing off anyone who's older than 30 as somehow not having the digital skills or any transferable skills to use in a digital age, whereas actually all of us are users of technology, consumers of technology. I mean, I remember being there at the very beginning when some of these things were <laughs> extremely new indeed and we haven't we haven't moved that far forward in 24 years of the internet being available in some ways indeed uh, i mean sure. one of the other things which uh, we've been featuring on the podcast over the last few episodes is our series of uh, user stories which are essentially observed insights uh, of people that we've seen um, doing real things with real technology in the real world and I mean, I find that a fascinating process and quite often they end up being people um, who fall outside that kind of typical um, early adopter uh, group of people who are right at the cutting edge of technology and are actually people who are using it in um, very diverse ways in in the rest of their lives. Uh, And it's... uh, yeah, a source of continuing fascination to me to see just the variety of ways in which um, these kind of devices, which we all assume to be in the hands of you know, people in their 20s you know, doing things with all of the latest apps and services, are actually being used for some really quite uh, interesting things, which would, I imagine, surprise a lot of the creators of these these products, which I suppose comes back to that that need to be able to um, you know gather those insights and feed them back into the, the product development process. Exactly. One of the things I always found in East Africa was that people use things like mobile payments in ways they were never designed for. But what a great sort of playground for innovation that is that's being driven by users. And and, and Ramona, when you're bringing in different people together to to try to you know solve a challenge, um, and here I'm thinking both in both in Spring, but also some of your other angel investing. Um, do do you find you you end up with a, a particular set of challenges around integrating people who are younger, older, male, female, different experiences, different cultures? I'd say for me that the challenge, the greater challenge, may be around getting people off of their area of expertise. We have a lot of experts in the development world. We have people who are experts in gender, experts in women's economic empowerment, experts in entrepreneurship, and they will always have a very fixed lens. So the challenge is less less sort of getting people from different backgrounds to work together, because I've done quite a bit of that in other contexts, and there's a there's a way to do it. But it's more about getting people to see other lenses in which they are not an expert in a way that doesn't diminish their knowledge at all. So what I've been trying to do is find boundary spanners, people who are more T-shaped. They may have one primary area of expertise, but they're also very curious and and very open to challenging established wisdom. Um, And that's actually when you start to get some of the more magical solutions together. So Ramona, um, tell us a little bit about what the uh, future holds for spring and, and what are the, the next steps um, for, for what you plan for the, uh, the accelerator? Well, it's a very exciting time. Um, this was originally a five-year program uh, that's sort of been compressed into four years uh, and we're now about a year and a half in. 
So in the next one and a half to two years, uh, we're going to have three more cohorts. Um, our first South Asia cohort will be open for application on the 11th of April. Um, as I say, we're trying to get a variety of businesses in from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. Uh, we'll also go, be going back to East Africa, uh, to Kenya, Rwanda, and Uganda, but also expanding into two new countries, Ethiopia and Tanzania, uh, with the application window there opening up in late October of this year. And then possibly for our fourth cohort, we may be going to another region, to Southeast Asia. But for now, watch this space. It could be East Africa, it could be South Asia, or we could decide to bring together our outperformers into one super cohort. We haven't quite decided that yet. So that's that's the big picture of what's going to be happening over the next couple of years. But we'll also be gathering and tracking all of our learning and all of our impact so that we can share those lessons with a wide community, including the design community, the, the development community, um, policymakers, and just interested parties. Because to be honest, the lessons we learn about what works or doesn't work are as valuable as our, as our targets for impact on individual girls themselves. We really hope to be able to provide, provide a foundation of very good learning in this space. In terms of interested parties, um, I, I guess uh, three of, of the key ones are, are, are your, your funders, uh, mm -hmm. DFID, uh, USAID and, and the Nike Foundation. Yes. Um, I, I guess they must be staying on board and, and, and happy to support you if you're able to, to expand now through to, to four cohorts? Well, it was always four cohorts. That was always the original design. Um, and the, the thought behind that was to compare um, between regions. The one question we have outstanding is for our fourth cohort, we may have to try and find other funding because there was also an ambition on behalf of many donors that somehow private sector would want to get in and fund something like this, which is an as yet to be proven hypothesis on their part. But is that is that part of what you're doing now is trying to also find uh, private investment? We will be. Um, at the moment, that manifests mainly through looking at chunks of pro bono support. So, for example, Hogan Lovells, um, a global law firm, have been phenomenal as part of their commitment to women and girls to giving us a lot of due diligence and mentoring support. And we hope to find more partners of that ilk. Um, but we're also hoping to find someone to fund things like human-centered design capacity building, either a foundation or a private enterprise. So watch this space. Well, we'll certainly include some links in the show notes to what's going on with the Spring Accelerator uh, and perhaps leave that as a, a bit of an open call to those in the MEX community who perhaps have some of those human-centered design skills mm. and, and may want to get involved. Uh, and great We'd to hear that. as well the commitment on your side to sharing what you're learning from these programs at the, the Spring Accelerator. I mean, I think that's something which is really positive for anyone working in this field and who has an interest in human-centered design to be able to tap into the results of these things and you know, if there's anything which is kind of at the heart of what we've tried to do with the MEX initiative, it's that idea of sharing those yeah. learnings as widely as possible so that everyone can, can benefit and can, uh, you know, keep the discussion going, as it were. Exactly. Well, look, Ramona, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to come on and yeah, talk us through some of your own motivations for, for the work that you've done over the years and what's been going on with Spring. Uh, it's been uh, really fascinating for me to find out about it. Um, and we will make sure there are some links in the show notes so that people can um, check out the, the work that you're doing as well. But thanks very much indeed for taking the time. Fantastic. Thank you both for the invitation. Thanks, Ramona. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that discussion with Ramona Liberoff, the CEO of the Spring Accelerator. 
we sat down to start it around the notion of innovation has many guises and I think it certainly ended up proving to be the case as we ended up having a really wide-ranging conversation about the role of design and how that drives real change uh, in the lives of, of users in very diverse parts of the world. Uh, so don't forget that you can find show notes linking to all of the things that we mentioned during that discussion at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. There's also a growing archive of previous episodes with all of the other interviews and user stories and uh, various things that we've covered in the podcast. So do go and check those out. Uh, And please keep the feedback coming as well. We're getting some wonderful comments and uh, ideas coming in from uh, all of the listeners, uh, including some great recommendations for other people that we should have on as guests uh, on the podcast as word starts to spread about it. Uh, So it's wonderful to uh, hear from the listeners and you can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter at MexFeed or take a look at mobileuserexperience.com and there are some easy links there to uh, find our email addresses and drop us an email. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.